Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark. And the words that I'd like to direct your attention to will be found in Mark chapter 5. And we'll be reading verses 21 through 43. Mark 5, 21 through 43. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well immediately. The flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl. I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately, they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Please pray with me. Lord, as we have just sung, 
Our desire is that Christ would be glorified. He'd be glorified in our minds. He'd be glorified in our hearts. He'd be glorified in our wills. So we pray, Spirit, that You would come in power to give understanding and to build conviction and to bring about maturity in our hearts that our faith might be strengthened. That we might recognize the power of Christ to save. So that even as we go forth from this building, we would have such faith that we would joyfully proclaim Christ's power to save any individual and ultimately to save us from all of our afflictions and the consequences from sin. Lord, you know the needs of each one of us. You know our battles. You know our discouragements. And you know what we will face in the future. And so I pray that you would equip us to handle all these things, even through your word. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. On April 1st, 1905, as a set of national regulation, national radio regulations in Germany, It was required that ships in distress were instructed to use a common Morse code signature or signal to indicate if they're in distress. And we know that signal today as an SOS. And the first recorded usage of that distress signal was actually for the passenger ship, the Slavonia, which was wrecked in the Azores in 1909. So about four years after this regulation came into being. And on account of sending out an SOS, everyone on that ship was saved. And even though SOS actually doesn't stand for anything, many people have attributed it to mean uh, save our ship or even save our souls. But in fact, it just is dishes and dashes and can actually be, you know, different letters can actually fit in there according to how you arrange it. So it doesn't stand for anything, but we commonly have known it to mean save our souls. But it brings up this question. What would you do if you recognized that you needed to be saved? And I suppose it would depend on what you needed to be saved from. If you needed to be saved from a wrecked ship, you would probably send out an SOS like the Slavonia did. But if you were having your home invaded by an intruder, you would seek to be saved, I imagine, by the police. Or if someone you knew was having a heart attack, that you would seek salvation from an ambulance to come. But what would you do if you had an incurable condition? Or what would you do if you yourself were facing imminent death. Or if you knew somebody in your family, a child perhaps, or a spouse, who had an incurable condition, a terminal disease, would the words, Jesus saves, mean anything to you? Well, last week we saw Jesus 
save a man from his spiritual slavery. And in fact, in today's passage, we see him saving two individuals, two more individuals, a woman from an incurable infirmity and a little girl from death. And the two healings that take place in this account really should be read as a unit. And this is seen in the fact that Mark actually uses his sandwich technique, which is he does multiple times in his gospel. He begins by telling a story and then there's an interruption and then he comes back again to finish the story. And the reason he does this is the structure emphasizes that the same point is actually being made in both stories. And so they're to be taken together as a unit. Moreover, you'll see as we look at this passage, there are four other parallels recognized in both stories. For instance, the dimension of 12 years. The woman had a 12-year hemorrhage and the girl was 12 years old. He calls them both daughters. The girl is a daughter of Jairus and the woman is referred to as daughter. There is a ceremonial uncleanness in both. A bodily discharge as well as one who is dead. There's also fear. Both the woman and Jairus struggle with fear. But they find relief from their fear through faith. And in fact, that is the point of both stories. Salvation is brought about through faith. They are saved through faith. And so this, this, this uh, passage can be broken down, I think, really into three different ways that really kind of mark Mark's sandwich technique. The first is a request of faith, particularly Jairus' request, and then a restoration of faith, and then finally a resurrection on account of faith. Let's look first of all at, at the request of faith beginning in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. This request of faith is made by a man named Jairus. And we're told that he's a synagogue official. A arch synagogos, which means basically he was the, the president of a synagogue. It was actually a lay position, but it had considerable influence. He was the one in charge of selecting the scriptures that would be read. If they were going to have a teacher, he would select the teacher. And so it's, he was an important individual, and it's, it's quite possible that he was actually the most influential religious figure in the whole region. He was also probably quite wealthy to have attained this position. So a man of significant influence and leadership. We're then informed in verse 23 that his daughter is actually on the point of death. That is, she's, she's literally on the brink of death and about to breathe her last. Which tells us that, that there's really not much time left. There's no time to lose to get Jesus to come to her so that she might be saved before she perishes. And we see in his request that Jairus fully believes 
that Jesus has the power to keep her from dying. He believes that all Jesus needs to do is to come to her and lay his hands upon her and she will be healed. In fact, it's worth noting that the word translated in the, in the NASB, get well, is typically translated to be saved. It's the word sozé. And almost in every passage in Scripture, it's translated to be saved. But it's a general word. It's the same word we use to be saved from our sins. But it's a general word that just means salvation. And consider the power of this father's desperate plea to Jesus. Because it ultimately saves this girl from death. And I bring that up because frequently when needs arise, or when we're especially pressed in very difficult circumstances, our tendency is often not to pray, but rather to, to find a way to fix the problem, either by finding out who is it that we can speak to that might have influence to change the circumstance. Or we might think, what, what responsibilities do we need to back out of in order for this pressure to be relieved? Or we might even look to our wallets to solve the problem. We get thrown into desperate circumstances, our, our initial response is often just to fix the situation on our own, through our own resources, rather than to pray. And I think in the worst cases, we, we complain to others about our problems and become self-pitiful. But I strongly believe that our sovereign God brings us into such situations just to teach us to look to Him to save us. To teach us to pray. Which, of course, we're, we're resistant to do in our own self-confidence, and our own desires to, to solve our own problems. I think of uh, what Paul says in, in, the, in 2 Corinthians when he was put in a circumstance where he thought he was going to die. And he says he believed God put him in that circumstance so that he would learn to trust in God who can deliver us from death. And I think when we, we look to ourselves to fix situations rather than just going to the Lord primarily in prayer, we miss out on the joy of seeing Him provide for us. As the hymn says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. And oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to the Lord in prayer. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. And I want, I want you to consider with me Jesus' instruction regarding prayer. Familiar passage. Please read with me in, in Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 5. Jesus says, after instructing in what's known as the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, He says this, Suppose one of you has a friend. And goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. 
So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And it's Jairus, in line with this instruction, in seeing his desperate need, goes to the Lord and seeks his power to save his daughter from death. We're then brought in verse 25 to the story of a woman who is restored by her faith. Her health is restored by faith. Beginning again in verse 25. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but had rather grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And Mark emphasizes the grievousness of this woman's situation Because as you might recall from our study of Leviticus, any bodily discharge would render anybody ceremonially unclean. And according to the law that God gave Israel, a person who is unclean, ceremonially speaking, would be unfit to be in God's presence. So while they were unclean, they would in fact essentially be a Gentile. And relegated to, be, to live outside the camp. And in the wilderness. The realm of the Gentiles. In Leviticus 15.31. The Lord says. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness. Lest they die in their uncleanness. By defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. If they were to enter the presence of the Lord. While unclean. They would defile God's presence. And so just to remind you of the gravity of being in God's presence while unclean, consider how God responded to Aaron's sons when they offered strange fire up to the Lord. It says in Leviticus 10.2, And fire came up before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. Do not bring any unclean thing into my presence, for I am holy. That's what he's saying. So this woman was ceremonially unclean on account of her hemorrhage for 12 years. So just to put that in perspective. Consider what were you doing 12 years ago? What was going on in your life? I myself, um, I was just about to graduate seminary. Been married two years. So this woman's hemorrhage is no small issue. 
12 years is a, is a long time. Furthermore, it says that we're, we're told that on account of this condition, she sought help to be healed. She went to multiple physicians, but they couldn't help her. And Mark gives no graphic details, but this expresses the grievousness of her situation. She had endured much at their hands. And no, more than that, she had spent all that she had. She had given her whole life to, to be healed from this disease. All of her money, all of her time, and yet none of it helped. All of it was to no avail. I mean, just imagine giving yourself for 12 years to some cause, to some purpose, and you invest all of your time, all of your money, all of your energy into that cause, and after 12 years' time, all you could do is look back and say it only made it worse. Not only was it a vain attempt, but it, it only made the condition worse. Well, that's this woman's condition. So we can only imagine the hopelessness that she must have felt, the anger that she must have felt, the, the fear, the desperateness. But when she heard of Jesus, that hope that was probably gone a long time ago was immediately revived. She determines in her mind that she's going to touch Him. Verse 28 says she, she thought to herself. The verb conveys that she kept saying to herself as she pressed through the crowd, if I just touch Him, if I just touch Him, if I just touch Him, then I'll be healed. I'll be saved. And as with Jairus' request, she uses the same Greek word that he uses, the word saved. I'll be saved if I just touch Him. This shows the... the her remarkable faith. But it's made all the more remarkable in light of the hopelessness that she has experienced over the last 12 years. You could say that like Abraham, in this instance, she was hoping against hope. She had belief that was unbelievable. Being fully convinced that Christ was able to completely save her. It's amazing faith. And notice how Mark emphasizes this word, touch. If I only touch him, she says. And then Jesus asks, who touched me? And again, the disciples say, who touched? This emphasis of the word touch, and this, this demonstrates two things. First, we're told in the book of Leviticus and it emphasizes this fact that whoever is touched by an unclean person also becomes unclean. And so what this woman is seeking to do is religiously reprehensible. She's just thinking of herself. And in fact, in her mind, in going to Jesus, she's not thinking about what her touching him might do. In fact, going into a crowd of people and every person in that crowd that she touches is becoming ceremonially unclean. So just imagine 
a person with an infectious disease going into a crowd, knowing that they were going to infect every person in that crowd. That's reprehensible. Second, consider the immense power just surrounding Jesus. One touch is all it took to cure an issue that was incurable. So this emphasis of the word touch demonstrates both the reprehensibleness of this woman being willing to touch everybody, but even Christ. But then at the same time, it emphasizes just one touch was all it took. And what would have stood out to Jewish readers as they hear this account is that if Jesus is in fact the Son of God and she touched Him while she was unclean, why didn't she die? Because He's God. Well, it's because Christ was God veiled in a body. And when He touch somebody he would heal them just by his presence immediately it says Jesus knew that power had gone out of him and so he inquired as to who had touched him this greatly frightened the woman For she had touched a fellow Jew while unclean, a a great teacher no less. And although she wasn't fully aware of it, she had in fact touched God while defiled. And so fully expecting to be severely punished for her audacity, she comes forward visibly trembling with fear. And yet instead of condemnation, consider what she hears. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Jesus calls her daughter. This, again, paralleling Jairus, it it demonstrates that Jesus had the same affection for her that Jairus had for his frail little girl who was on the point of death. These are the most tender words he could have ever spoken. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed. So even in his tenderness, Jesus is also teaching. He's wanting this woman, as well as his disciples, as well as the surrounding crowds, to learn something. He wants them to know that that what brings about this woman's healing, her salvation, is her faith. Your faith has saved you. Well, one might ask, well, what was her faith in? What was in Jesus' power to save? And notice that she demonstrated the reality of her faith in her actions. She touched him. She pursued him and then she touched him. And this is important because, again, it demonstrates that faith is not merely an intellectual concept. One who has faith demonstrates that faith in their wills. As well as their affections. As, as Paul says in, in the book of Romans, as well, repeating the book of Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Not just think 
with faith. They shall live by their faith. As as Chris often says, we need to believe our own belief. And I think even as Christians, it's easy to, to think that, that faith is just something that goes on in our mind. That's the, but that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is something that transforms our thinking as well as our affections, as well as our wills. True faith is demonstrated in how we live. And I think often as Christians too, our hearts need to catch up with our heads. Our wills need to catch up with our hearts as well as our heads. Often, what we live doesn't really look like what we actually believe. If somebody were to determine what you believe based upon how they see you live, what would they, deter- what would they conclude? Saving faith encompasses all of our life. Consider these words of Martin Luther, who is the great champion of the fact that we are saved by faith alone. Right? The, the beginner of the Reformation. This is what he writes. Faith is a work of God in us, which changes us and brings us to birth anew from God. He cites John 1. It kills the old Adam makes us completely different people in heart, mind, senses, and all our powers, and brings the Holy Spirit with it. What a living, creative, active, powerful thing faith is. It is impossible that faith ever stop doing good. Faith doesn't ask whether good works are to be done, but before it is asked, it has done them. It is always active. Whoever doesn't do such works is without faith. He gropes and searches about him for faith and good works, but does not know what faith or good works are. And what he's saying essentially is that those who have genuine faith will also have good works. As James says, faith without works is dead. It's not real faith. It's dead faith. It's just faith of an imagination. And this woman had genuine faith. And that's why she's saved from her infirmity. Next, we witness a resurrection on account of faith. So we see a request of faith, a restoration by faith, and then a resurrection on account of faith. Look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Yes, why, do, why trouble the teacher? You hear the hopelessness in, in those words. But Jesus doesn't like what he hears. Because, again, in this statement, he hears despair. He hear, hears hopelessness. And moreover, even as he did in the previous chapter, Mark chapter 4, verse 38... He's going to show that he is more than a teacher. Not only does he have the power to say to the sea, be calm, be at peace. He has the power to raise someone from the dead. And so Jesus' counsel to Jairus is actually the key point in this larger section of Mark that contrasts responses of fear versus responses of faith. 
Notice what he says. Do not fear. Only believe. I'll actually give it to you in the Greek. You'll recognize the words. Me phobu manon pistue. Do not fear. Only believe. And actually the verb tense to believe is in the present. It actually means keep on believing. Hold fast. Grip faith. Keep on believing, Jairus. Don't stop believing, even in the face of overwhelming circumstances. It, it reminds one of actually the, the parable of the sower again. Then the rocky soil. The, 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 Jesus said that that soil has no firm root in themselves, but they're only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. So this is the battle we all face. This battle of facing affliction and things that frighten us, things that scare us, things that terrify us, overwhelming circumstances. And the battle we face is, are we going to respond to those terrifying, frightening, horrifying circumstances like death with fear or with faith? Will we take God at his words? And I think it's helpful just even to to assess, well, how do we respond to challenges throughout the day? When we're not in really frightening circumstances. If one were to assess the majority of your thoughts during the day, would they be marked more by fear or by confidence in God's word? What if they were to assess your words? Or your decisions? The Christian life is a war. And the majority of the fights that we face are over whether we're going to give in to fear or whether we're going to believe. I just recently was reading uh, two days ago in the book of Esther when Mordecai hears that Haman had decreed that all the Jews in the land shall be slaughtered. And he comes mourning with sackcloth. And Esther hears of it and, and, and wants to give him clothes and clean him up. And he says no. And, and he tells her what she needs to do. But even in the midst of him telling Esther to do something, he says, even if you don't do anything, help will come from some other place. Faith reminds one of, of, of Daniel's companions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we will not bow, for God will save us. But even if he doesn't, we still will not bow. That's faith. Again, it's not just an imaginary idea. God sounds like a strong God. I'm going to believe that doctrine. No, this is, this is your life is on the line, and you're going to hold to what you believe rather than give in to fear. And Jairus here is confronted with arguably the worst fears anybody could ever face. The death of his own child. And Jesus' counsel to him in this horrifying situation is, don't fear. Keep on believing. And then Mark notes that he took with him Peter, James, and John. And that's that's significant because this only happens three times in this gospel. And consider the other two times. 
It's on the Mount of Transfiguration where they see Christ glorified. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he brings them to the house of Jairus. It says in verse 38 that he saw commotion and people weeping loudly. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Well, this presents a bit of a theological enigma. Is Jesus lying? Because she's dead. That's why the people laugh. Why does Jesus say that she was sleeping? It's not because he's lying. It's because he's trying to teach us something. He's wanting to teach us something about death and resurrection for the believer. His point is that death, by definition, is permanent. When something's dead, it's done. This girl wasn't dead because she would rise again. And, she, and Christ knew that, and that's why he says she's only sleeping. Death is only sleep for those who will rise again. That's something we really need to take to heart. We don't like to talk about death in our culture very much, but we will all face it. And as a believer, this is one of those promises that will hold you when you're facing imminent death. Your death is only sleep. We will all go to sleep tonight. We have all gone to sleep mostly every night of our life. And we've gotten up again. Death for the believer is sleep. And that's why, case in point, when uh, Daniel Lozano passed away a couple years ago, he wanted it to be a celebration as he was going to be with the Lord, but he knew it was just sleep. He was going to rise again. And so will we if our faith is in Christ. And it's this theological truth that inspired Paul's counsel to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He doesn't even say death there either. Because for the Christian, death is not death. It's sleep. It is not death to die for the Christian. And when we die, we're no more dead than this girl Talitha. And just as Talitha, after being touched by Christ, got up and ate, likewise, we will too get up and eat when we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the point of this passage is that Jesus can save us from all of the consequences of sin. There is not one consequence of sin that Jesus does not save from. We saw him 
save a woman from physical infirmities that no physician could cure. We saw last week that he saved a man who is enslaved to possibly thousands of demons. But the most glorious truth of all is that Jesus can give us freedom from death as well, which is the point of Jairus' daughter. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Consider another great promise. Hebrews 2, verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. But it brings up this question, how does Jesus do this? How does Jesus actually save us from all the consequences of sin? Turn to Isaiah 53. This will clarify why the woman was not consumed when she touched Jesus. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely our griefs he bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we're healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That last verse, that last phrase, the iniquity of us all, is very telling. Because what's happening, what it means is that when Jesus touched that woman in her uncleanness, he absorbed her uncleanness. When he touched Talitha, who was dead, he absorbed her death. And in fact, when Jesus died on the cross... What was going on is he was absorbing the sin of the whole world into himself so that God could crush him and deliver a final blow to all that sin. That uncleanness didn't just get wiped away. It had to be absorbed by Christ. The reason that woman wasn't consumed is because Jesus took all of her uncleanness, all of her filth, all of her sin, and absorbed it so that he could bear the penalty of it on the cross. And that's what he does for you and I. That's how Jesus saves from all the consequences of sin. The Holy Son of God took all our sins upon him on the cross and suffered the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. And this passage teaches that we receive that salvation through faith. When we believe that that's what He does, that that's what He did, that that's what He accomplished. So all of the consequences of sin are reversed through faith in Christ. Slavery to sin. The wrath of God. Physical illness, physical infirmities, even death. Jesus saves 
from all of those things. That's the point of this passage. Jesus saves from all the consequences of death. Therefore, do not fear. Only believe that He has the power to save. Let's pray. Strengthen our faith, Lord. Give us faith if we lack it. And for those of us who have faith, strengthen it. Not just in our minds, but in our hearts and our affections, as well as in our wills, that we would be Christ-like, that we would live by faith. Because we do believe the truth that Christ died. And because He died, we can be saved from sin. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who does not yet know You, that they would now know You as their Savior. And as they consider all of the afflictions of their life, all of the horrors of the consequences of sin, they would realize there is salvation in no one else, but only in Christ. And that they would look to You and be saved. We ask this in Your name. Amen.